It is good to be with you and worship the Lord and to sing songs of praise to Him. I hope it is, as it ought to be, the highlight of your week to finally get together with God's people and sing songs of praise and worship Him by hearing His Word. It is in moments like these, though imperfect, though we live in a fallen world, it is in moments like these that we catch a taste of heaven. And so, if you have your Bible with you today, and I hope you do, please turn to 1 Peter chapter 2. We're in the middle of a passage from verses 4 through 12, which lay out for us in glorious detail the identity and purpose that we as believers find together in Christ Jesus. And this section of Scripture, as I continue to study it, is simply wonderful for many, many different reasons, but I think most of all because they are, these verses are expressly Christ-centered. See, at the heart of this whole section is verses 6 through 8, where Peter, which we studied last week, magnifies the supremacy and centrality of Jesus Christ by declaring almost triumphantly over those marginalized, ridiculed, and persecuted believers. He declares to them, for it stands in Scripture, behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. And with that, Peter boldly presents from several Old Testament scriptures, the saving doctrine of Christ alone. That He is the cornerstone upon which you must build your life, or He will become the judgment stone over which you will stumble to eternal destruction. Peter's message is quite clear. You must come to Christ. And you must come to Christ alone if you want to have life and have it more abundantly. You have to lose your life. You have to surrender your life to Christ's saving sovereignty in order to find it. And if you do, if you come to Jesus Christ in faith and trust in what He has done on the cross to save you from your sin and condemnation, you will find with Christ and in Christ and through Christ a life of overwhelming identity, purpose, and self-fulfillment. And so that's what this entire passage is all about, verses 4-12. through It's all about the joint purpose and identity that you and I as believers find together in Christ Jesus. Well, we started looking at this two weeks ago in verses 4-5 through where Peter laid out for us the purpose of our joint progression in Christ. One of the things that we've realized and is true of the new birth is that when you truly are born again, you begin to grow spiritually. And there's a purpose to that growth. There's a purpose to that progression. At the beginning of verse 5, Peter said that we're like living stones that are being built up as a spiritual house. That is our joint identity. Living stones who are connected to Jesus Christ, the living stone. And together we are being built up. Together we are drawing closer and closer together. We are progressing, growing together into a spiritual house of worship. To what end? End of verse 5, to offer up as holy priests spiritual sacrifices that are now acceptable to God through Christ Jesus. That's the purpose of our joint progression. It is to worship God by serving each other, the body of Christ and the local church. We're saved to serve. We're saved to serve. That is the purpose of our joint progression in Christ. Well, today we're going to look at our next purpose as a people, and that's in verses 9 through 10, which is the purpose of our joint possession by Christ. 
We've already learned back in chapter 1, verse 19, that we have been purchased by the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish and without spot. We are not our own, as Scripture teaches, for we have been bought with a price. Well, why? Why is that? Why have we been purchased? We're going to find out today in verses 9 through 10 the purpose of our joint possession by Christ. And then finally next week, we'll look at verses 11 through 12 where we'll discover the purpose of our joint pilgrimage with Christ. So the purpose of our joint progression in Christ, the purpose of our joint possession by Christ, and the purpose of our joint pilgrimage with Christ. We, as those who have been born again, have a purpose as a people. As a people. And so with that in mind, let's read 1 Peter chapter 2. Starting at verse 9 into verse 10. And no, I've got to read the context. (laughs) Verse 4. As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, you yourselves like living stones are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe. But for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone, and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they do not obey the word as they were destined to do. Verse 10, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy that is the word of god for which those who are far from his law persecute us with evil purpose let's pray father we thank you for your word this morning we thank you that as we go on this pilgrim's pathway through this world headed to glory And as we become confused and distracted by the fog of ideas, by the winds of various doctrines, by the appeals and baubles of this vanity fair, we thank you that your word this morning calls us back to the most essential things. Who is Jesus and who has he made me to be? Father, I pray that this morning you would simply remind us of who we are so that we might be able to live the lives that we need to in this world for the glory of Jesus and for the salvation of the lost. We recognize, Father, the intense importance of your word today. That is it upon our heeding of your word that our souls hang and the souls of those we love. May we listen, may we obey, and may we worship you by giving attention to your word. We ask this in Jesus' name.
Amen. Now, before we even dive in this morning, I want to mention another reason why I love these verses as I was studying them, and that is because they explain, as I was looking at it, nearly every major thing that we do as Christians, everything that we do together as a church. I don't know if you've ever thought about this before, but everything that you do is rooted in something that you are. Everything you do is rooted in something that you are. For example, some of us go to school and study from Monday to Friday. Why? Because you are a student. Some of you go to businesses and you work throughout the week. Why? Because you are an employee. Some of us juggle juveniles like circus clowns. Why? Because you are parents. (laughs) The point is, everything that you do is rooted in something that you are. Or to put it another way, actions are always rooted in identity. That's the way it is for us as believers also, even in a spiritual sense. Everything we do as Christians is and ought to be rooted in who we are in Christ. That is why this church exists. That is why the church exists. The church does not exist because thousands of years ago, a couple of guys got together and decided to call a career path for themselves. I think we'll become pastors and create this thing called a church. No. The church does not exist because of that. The church exists because of something that Christ has done and is doing in the lives of those whom he has redeemed. And it is because of who we are that we are doing what we do, right? This is is a demonstration this morning of the miraculous new birth. That is why this church exists. Our actions are rooted in our identity. So, for example, in verses 4 through 5, why do we as a church regularly gather together and worship and serve one another? Is it because we're commanded to? Well, yes. I mean, yes, we are commanded to do those things, but primarily it's because of something that we now are and something that we are becoming. As we are coming to Jesus Christ increasingly, we are naturally, supernaturally being built up into a spiritual house alongside other believers, other believers that we are continually serving in greater and greater ways as priests of God. What we're doing is because of who we are. We worship and serve one another, not because we're forced to, but because we're made to. It is organic. It is natural. As we draw near to Jesus, we're drawing near to each other in love and in service. Our actions are rooted in our identity. While Peter is going to mention another way that our actions are rooted in our identity in verses 9-10, through as Peter reveals for us the purpose of our possession, our joint possession by Christ. That's in verses 9-10. through And just like last time, Peter starts off by highlighting our joint identity as believers together in Jesus, and then he connects that to our joint purpose in Christ. So first, let's consider this morning who we are. Let's remember who we are. Let's consider our joint identity. That's at the beginning of verse 9, where Peter says this, But you're a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. Now, Peter begins by saying this, but you are. And with that phrase, Peter sets up an immediate contrast with those whom he has just described in the previous verses in verses 7 through 8. Who are those people? Well, they are those who refuse to believe in Jesus Christ, who stumble over the judgment stone, who disobey the commandment to come to Christ in faith for forgiveness, who reject the offer of salvation and eternal life through faith in Jesus Christ. Those are those people, right? But in contrast to those who will not listen to Jesus or submit to him, 
and His saving sovereignty. To, in contrast to those who will not repent and who will not come to Jesus. In contrast to those who one day will stumble over Jesus into eternal destruction. We, as recipients, as Peter is going to say later, as recipients of God's mercy, we who have come to Christ in faith and have surrendered ourselves to His saving sovereignty, as the sole authority and cornerstone of our lives, we are, he says here, a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. You are distinct by the grace and mercy of God. You are, as you were once set apart for destruction, you are now set apart for God and his purposes. This is glorious. Do not forget who you are. Brothers and sisters, this is our joint identity in Jesus. We are a race chosen. We are a priesthood royal. We are a nation holy. We are a people possessed by God himself. We belong to him. And by the way, these are all joint identities, okay? These are joint identities. One person cannot be an entire race. Nor can one person be an entire priesthood or an entire nation or an entire people group. Therefore, according to Peter, if you're a believer, then it is assumed you will be operating among and existing as a part of an assembly of other believers. You cannot live your Christian life in isolation. That is a foreign idea. In fact, when you study the book of 1 Peter, Peter cannot describe those who are genuinely born again and following Jesus any other way. Throughout this letter, Peter finds it increasingly impossible to rightly describe someone who is connected to Christ without also describing someone who is connected to Christ's body, the church. It is assumed. It is necessary. It is a natural thing. If you're coming to Christ, you're going to be built up into a spiritual house. You're going to be drawn closer and closer to a local assembly and a heavenly embassy of this chosen race, royal priesthood, and holy nation. It's just going to happen. Peter cannot describe genuine believers without describing them in relationship with other believers. If you're growing in your devotion and commitment to Jesus, you're going to be growing in your devotion and commitment to Christ's bride through the local church. So I want to just pause for a second and say, if that's something you haven't done yet, I'd encourage you to do that this morning, right? Sign up for next week's membership class. Come and talk to me after the service. I'd love to talk to you about how we can take that next step of obedience and devotion to following Jesus together here by becoming a member at Grace Chapel. Testify that you're a part of this chosen race, royal priesthood, holy nation, and people for God's own possession. And, and what's interesting about that phrase is I think that last phrase really summarizes everything that Peter said before. As those who have come to and are coming to Christ, we are a people of God's own possession. And all these other descriptions that we're about to look at emphasize that final point. For example, Peter says that we are a chosen race. Question, chosen by whom? By God. He says we're a royal priesthood. Priests in the service of whom? God. He says we're a holy nation. We are holy, set apart. For whom? For God, right? All these descriptions are underlining the same glorious truth over and over again. That if you have been born again by God's grace and mercy in Christ Jesus, you belong to God. You watch Toy Story, what's under Woody's foot? The name Andy, right? You come to Christ, what's under your spiritual foot? God. You belong to Him. You belong to Him. We are a people for His own possession. 
And that, when you realize that simple truth, that you belong to God, it ought to dramatically affect absolutely everything in your life, as we're going to see throughout the rest of this letter. We are God's people now. So let's consider the three different ways that we as believers belong to God as given in this introductory passage. First, we belong to God because it says first he is the father of our family. Look at verse 9. Peter says in verse 9 that in Christ we as believers have become members of a, he says, chosen race. If we had time to explore that this morning, that idea comes straight out of the book of Deuteronomy 7 and 10 where Israel is called by God a chosen race. Well, here, Peter says that we who are in Christ are a chosen race also. So just as, if you think about it, Abraham's offspring was chosen by God out of all the nations and families of the world to be a people set apart for God and his purposes, so also we who are in Christ Jesus have been chosen by God out of all the peoples of the earth to become a special people set apart for God also. The divine calling and election of God that previously only Jews understood, we as Gentile believers, as elect exiles, have now experienced in Christ Jesus. We are, as Peter says here, a chosen, and he says this, notice, race. Now that word race is genos in the Greek, and it's where we get our English word generations from, right? Like generations in a family. And that's the nuance that this phrase is communicating. Peter's saying that we as believers are family members that are related to each other by blood. You say, well, whose blood? By the blood of Jesus Christ. As chapter 1, verse 2, and as chapter 1, verse 19, both taught it is by the precious blood of Christ that has sprinkled and redeemed all of us who have trusted in him. That is what all of us have in common, and that is what has brought us all together, even this morning, here to this room, right? It is the precious blood of Christ. By the blood of Jesus, we have become family members in God's own spiritual house with him as our Father. And that's why he told us earlier to put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. And that's why he told us to love one another earnestly out of a pure heart with a sincere brotherly love. Why? Because... We now call on God as Father, and we are members of his family. And we ought to act like it. We ought to do what our Father says. We are members of a chosen race. And by the way, a race, a a, a genos, is not just a family. It is a family that possesses distinct traits because of its bloodline. After all, if you were to think about it, people from Ireland don't quite look like people from India. And people from Germany don't quite look like people from Bangladesh, right? They have distinct bloodlines that produce distinct characteristics. And what Peter's saying is that when a sinner is united to Jesus Christ by faith, that individual begins to take on unique spiritual characteristics that are distinct to his unique spiritual bloodline in Jesus. As 1 Corinthians 15.49 reflects, having borne the image of the Son of Man, We shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. We take on his spiritual characteristics. In Christ, we begin to bear the unique and distinct traits of God's family, namely love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control, the fruit of the Spirit. All true believers will possess and begin to develop these unique family traits because we are a chosen race related by blood with God as our Father. And so that's the first way that we belong. We belong to God. Through the new birth, we belong to God because he is the father of this, our family, that he has chosen us to be a part of. We are distinct in that way. 
We are distinct in that way. He is the father of our family. Second, we belong to God because he is the God of our priesthood. The God of our priesthood. Peter says here in verse 9 that in Christ, we as believers are members not only of a chosen race, but also of a royal priesthood. And again, this idea could be developed a lot more at length, but the idea of being a royal priesthood has deep roots throughout the pages of the Old Testament, where Israel was called a kingdom of priests. Also, if you remember a guy from Genesis called Melchizedek, he was a priest of the Lord, and he also happened to be the king of the city of Salem. The only other time, though, outside of those instances of Israel and Melchizedek that you see the idea of a priest and a king combined is with the office of the promised Messiah, who was to be an eternal king from David's line and also a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. If anybody else ever tried to be king and priest, they would be immediately judged, and we saw that two weeks ago with King Saul and King Uzziah. But for those of us who are in Christ, the Messiah, who occupies both of those offices, right? Those two offices combine in us as well. Not only are we priests of God, which we talked about uh, in verse 5, but we are also royal priests, relatives of the king. And we and I, you and I, who have trusted in Christ, are destined to reign with him. As Revelation 20, verse 6 states, Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. That is us. Over such the second death has no power. But listen to this. They will be priests of God and of Christ, and they will reign with him for a thousand years. Because we're in Christ, we are a royal priesthood who are destined not to experience for all of eternity what we experience here on earth, But we are destined not only to serve God, but to reign with him also. That's wild when you think about it. As Paul says repeatedly in 1 Corinthians 6, 2-3, do you not know that you as saints will judge the world? The world is going to be judged by you. Do you not know that you are to judge even angels? Listen, believer, that is your identity. That is your identity. And it is unbelievably glorious we are a royal priesthood destined to reign with christ the king we are distinct a distinct people so that's the second way we belong to god he's the father of our family he's also the god of our priesthood and then finally the third way we belong to god in this passage is because he is the king of our kingdom he is the king of our kingdom peter says here in verse 9 that in christ we as believers are members not only of a chosen race and of a royal priesthood but also of a holy nation now we all understand what a nation is it is a group of people that are organized under a system of governing right and peter says that we are a holy nation meaning we are separate we are set apart for god and here once again peter is drawing on his knowledge of the old testament particularly a passage that I've already referenced, Exodus 19.6, where Israel is described as a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Well, here we are described as a holy nation. See, God is in the business of building a kingdom over which he is the king and he has set us apart for it. Through faith in Jesus Christ, God has brought us beneath his saving sovereignty and made us citizens of his eternal kingdom. And this is what we studied even in the book of Colossians, if you remember. Colossians chapter 1, 13-14 taught us he has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved Son. And again, Philippians 3.20 states our citizenship is in heaven. 
And from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. So we are citizens of a holy nation, of a heavenly kingdom that cannot be shaken, over which God is securely fastened as king. And as such, we now experience God's special favor and presence. So this is why we belong to God. Having been born again, we as believers in Jesus Christ belong to God because he is our father of our family. He is the God of our priesthood. He is the king of our kingdom. That is why Peter quotes Deuteronomy 7, verse 6 to conclude all of this by saying we are a people for his own possession. We belong to God. 1 Corinthians 6, 20 says we are not our own for we have been bought with a price. And as Titus 2, 14 says, God gave himself up for us to redeem us from all unlawlessness and to purify for himself, listen to this, a people for his own possession. That's Peter's main point. In Christ, God has become our Father, our God, and our King. We belong to Him. And we must remember this. We must remember this. This is so important. Why did I take time just now to walk through each one of those phrases very carefully? See, when I first started becoming a pastor, I would spend more time on the commands and less time on the identity. My perspective has completely switched after 10 years of being a pastor. We need to remember, most importantly, who we are so that we can then do what God asks us to do. And that's exactly what Peter does here for us. If we are going to be able to follow Jesus in obedience throughout the rest of this letter, and if it doesn't bite yet, oh brother, it's going to soon. And if we're going to be able to follow Jesus faithfully in everything that we see in the rest of this book, if we're going to live out essential Christianity for the rest of the world to see, then we have to remember our identity. Because let me posit some questions for you if you don't see the relevance of this yet. How in the world are we going to be able to start conducting ourselves properly in the midst of messy families? It is by reminding us that God is our Father and He's in charge, right? How in the world are we going to be able to start conducting ourselves properly in the messy workplaces and public squares in which we live? It is by remembering that God is our God and He's already set our perspective and our priorities for us. And how in the world are we going to be able to start conducting ourselves properly within our messy nation and government? It begins by remembering that God is our King. Believers, in the midst of this world, the number one thing you need to keep on coming back to is remembering who you are. Who you are. You are not like the rest of the world. You have been made distinct by the mercy, power, and grace of Christ Jesus. Don't forget your identity as a people. When you're dealing with hardships, who's your ultimate family? It is to those who hear the word and God and keep, heard of God to keep it, as Luke eleven twenty eight says. Believers, in the midst of hardship, what is your ultimate calling? It is to serve the household of God as His royal priests. Believer, in the midst of hardship, where is your ultimate citizenship and alliance lie? It is to the kingdom of God and of Christ alone. We are His children. We are His priests. We are His citizens. We belong to Him. And throughout the time of our exile here on earth, we march to the beat of His drum in every sphere of life. And I guarantee you, it does not look at all like what many of you are imagining right now in your minds. Essential Christianity is so very different than the cultural and political Christianity that many of us have simply absorbed by osmosis since birth. If you listen to 1 Peter, it will shake your world. We need to go back to the basics of what really matters, back to what never changes. 
back to who we are and to whom we belong. You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. This is our joint identity. We're a people possessed, owned, ruled, and held by God. And there is a purpose to this joint possession that Peter just introduces here and then he develops throughout the rest of the book. So we've seen our joint identity. Now let's consider our joint purpose at the end of verse 9 into verse 10. Peter tells us that we are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. Why? End of verse 9. That you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Can you imagine a greater privilege than that? In Christ Jesus, you have been appointed as an ambassador for the living God and as a herald for the redeeming king. You've got no greater message than that. You've got no greater purpose. He's the heavenly father who brought you into his own family. He's the divine God who brought you into his own service and station. And he is the saving king who has brought you into his own kingdom. And we get to, as it says here, proclaim his excellencies. And that word proclaim is very unusual. It's only found here in the entire New Testament, and it means to publish. It means to advertise, to proclaim something that is not known. It is to make a billboard of your life about a certain fact. And what ought to be the fact that our life is a billboard for? It is the excellencies of God. And this is so exciting because you see that word excellencies isn't describing so much the attributes of God, right? His virtue or his character, though it certainly does include that. What's actually described here is God's ability to do great, heroic, and powerful things. That's what we're to proclaim. Like Moses did in Exodus 15, that's why we read it this morning after the parting of the Red Sea when he stood up above the people of Israel and he sang out, the Lord is a warrior, the man of war, the Lord is his name. Your right hand, O Lord, is glorious in power. Your right hand, O Lord, scatters your enemies. Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders? You have led by your steadfast love the people whom you have redeemed, you have guided them by your strength into your holy abode the lord will reign forever and ever what is moses doing there he is proclaiming the excellencies the heroic power and ability of god to his people this is what it looks like to proclaim the excellencies of god and that's our purpose that's our privilege it is not to give fancy speeches to have a wonderful format by which we present a certain type of Bible passages in a certain row. Your job is to simply proclaim the heroic power and ability of God to save others just like he saved you. That's our purpose and that's our privilege. God has brought us into a close relationship with him. Why did he do that? So that we could all just come together in church and say, boy, isn't it great to be so close to God? No! He has brought us close to Him so that we might behold His excellencies, His mighty power to save, that we might behold that up close and personal and then be able to turn to someone else and say, this is what the Lord did for me and He can do it for you too. And this is not exceptional Christianity. We think that, right? Well, the exceptional Christians are those who are out there actually talking to unbelievers about Christ. No, actually, essential Christianity is about opening up your mouth and talking to those who are not saved about Jesus Christ. This is about the new birth. This is about what really happens when you're drawing near to Christ and beholding that He is good. 
He has made us His own children. Why? So that we might see firsthand and proclaim the powerful deeds and wonders of the Lord. Chief among them, by the power of His almighty Word, He called us out of darkness into His marvelous light. That is a powerful image, right? I mean, just like Jesus in John chapter 11, when He stood outside of Lazarus' tomb, remember what He did? He called out, Lazarus, come forth. God did the same for us spiritually as well. We were spiritually dead and doomed in our trespasses and sins, and God summoned us out of that. He said, sinner, come forth. Come to Christ. And just like that, by the power of His almighty Word, we were made alive and we walked right out of the darkness of our own death. And into the marvelous light of God's own life. As 2 Corinthians 4 verse 6 puts it, the same God who said, let light shine out of darkness has shone into our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Or as Ephesians 5 8 puts it, so simply, at one time you were darkness, but now you're light in the Lord. That is a story, ladies and gentlemen, that is worth telling. No one has a boring testimony when you look at it through the truth of God's Word. You have been born again by God's mercy and power. That is a story of His excellencies. You should be sharing it. That is a mighty deed worth proclaiming. So I just have a question from this before we finish up here. When's the last time you told someone that? I'm not talking about anything fancy, and I don't think Peter is either. Peter, if you study him in Scripture, was not a fancy guy. When's the last time you simply told someone that God has given you in Jesus a new life filled up with identity and purpose? Because you and I were saved for this. You and I were saved to herald just like Moses the mighty heroic power and ability of God. As Isaiah 43 verse 21 says, I have formed a people for myself. Why? That they might declare my praises. And that's why we're saved. Not just to serve one another, but to speak greatly of God. To speak greatly of Him as He really is. Living, powerful, majestic, glorious, doing mighty deeds even in our day. As Peter reminds us in verse 10, referencing Hosea 1 verse 10, he says, Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. To put it another way, Once we were a bunch of nobodies headed to judgment. But now we are children, priests, citizens of God, objects of mercy that have been bestowed with glorious purpose. We belong to and have been brought near to God by the blood of Jesus Christ so that we might experience Him firsthand and then proclaim to a lost and dying world the excellencies of Him who is able to call them out of their darkness. And into his marvelous light, just like he called us. As Psalm 73 verse 28 says, For me it is good to draw near to God. I have made the Lord my refuge. Why? So that I may tell of all your works. There's a purpose to our salvation. There's a purpose to us as a people. So we see the purpose of our joint possession by Christ. It is to proclaim God's excellencies his mighty heroic deeds. And this truth, this purpose of our possession by Christ, it begins to mark an important shift in this entire letter from one of inward focus to one of outward focus. Here we get our first taste 
that God is committed to doing wondrous works in us. And he is committed to doing wondrous works among us as his people. Why? So that he might do wondrous works through us and unveil his saving glory for the watching world to see. He wants to so utterly transform your life that people have to take notice and say, what type of God is this? We were saved for this. Not just to worship God, but in worshiping Him, to then beholding Him and proclaiming Him. And in fact, this is one of the reasons why we worship. right? So why do we gather together every week, come to church? right? Why do we do this? We come together and we worship as a chosen race on a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for His own possession. We do this every Sunday. Why? It is to remind ourselves and it is to tell ourselves what great things God has done for us so that we can then be equipped to go out and tell others what great things God can do for them. We get so used to proclaiming the gospel among ourselves that we ought to go out and share that same gospel with others. That's one of the purposes of why we come on Sundays. So this is our purpose as a people, to proclaim God's excellencies. And I want to lay before you the challenge, let's do it. Let's do it. First Peter is going to give us a lot of specific ways to begin doing it, but let's not wait then. Let's start now. Let's start now. So here's some homework, okay? Here's some homework. I want you to think, as you're sitting here this morning, of at least one person that you have a close connection to who hasn't heard your salvation testimony yet. Okay? I'm going to let you think, think about that for a little bit. And then this week, before we meet again, I want you to share it with them. I want you to share it with them. Like Moses, proclaim to them the mighty works and power of God. You know where I'd start if you're struggling to think of someone? I'd start with your own family. Parents, do your own children know your salvation testimony? Do they know what the Lord has done for you? Ask them and find out how much they know. Do they know your salvation testimony? I'd encourage you, parents, to share and proclaim the excellencies of God so often to your children that it is something that they know, remember, and can carry with them even when they're grown, even when you're gone. And you can start this afternoon. Children, do your parents know your salvation testimony? Do they know what the Lord has done and is doing for you? If your parents know your testimony, I have another question for you, children. Do some of your friends know your salvation testimony? Those who are closest to you should know the great and wonderful things that God has done for you. I'd encourage you to share your testimony so well that it is something that everyone who is close to you knows well. Because listen, brothers and sisters, it's a story worth telling. These are the excellencies of God. And if you don't have something to share, then I encourage you to come and talk to me. And I'd love to share with you how you can come to know Jesus by faith and you can experience His saving excellencies for yourself. Believers, we've been reminded this morning of what God has done in us and through us. We were nothing but a bunch of nobodies, nameless, angry rebels headed to destruction. 
But then God called us by name and has brought us near into His kingdom, into His service, into His very family so that we might behold His saving excellencies firsthand and proclaim them to others who need to see. This is our purpose of our joint possession in by Jesus. Do you have someone in mind that needs to hear this? Then let's go, as Mark 5.19 says, and tell them how much the Lord has done for us and what great mercy He has shown us. We were saved for this, our purpose as a people. This is the Word of God from 1 Peter 2, 9-10, which I now commit to your further study and your faithful obedience in the fervent care of one another until He who died to bring us into His family, service, and kingdom returns. To that end, let's pray. Father, I thank You. I thank You for reminding us this morning of who we are. Father, I thank You for the confidence that comes in Christ Jesus. When we're in the middle of hardship, we are so tempted to draw back in fear, in doubt, in confusion. But Father, if we remember who we are, and to whom we belong, we have the boldness to proclaim your heroic power. May we go out this week by our lives and by our words, telling others that you are a warrior and you are a redeemer of your people. May we proclaim your excellencies to a lost and dying world. And as they hear of the mercy that you have bestowed upon us, make us tools so that they might receive your mercy also. Use us, Father, we pray, as your people, as we go on this pilgrimage together. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.